welcome to Turning Point. You might be familiar with Paul's teaching on the whole armor of God, but one piece, the sword, stands out as the only offensive weapon. Today, Dr. David Jeremiah considers that weapon which every believer can count on for help in defeating the enemy. Continuing his series, The Word, here's David to introduce today's message, The Sword of the Spirit. Well, the Bible tells us that we have been given equipment uh, to use against the attacks of the devil. And all of the equipment that's listed in Ephesians chapter 6 is defensive. The helmet of God, the shoes, the breastplate. But there's one piece of equipment that is offensive, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I remember when I first understood what the sword of the Spirit was and realized it wasn't the Bible in its totality, but something different. And I'm going to share that with you today and tomorrow. I hope it will be an encouragement, and it's a very practical truth that you can use in your life every day. Friends, we are right now smack in the middle of the month of June. Um, The month goes very quickly, and as I've mentioned to you, This is a month that's very special to us because at the end of this month, we close our fiscal year. That means this is the end of our audit. And we always try to do really well in June so that we can finish strong and have a good report and be ready to face all the challenges that come as we enter into the next year. So we ask for your help during the month of June. If you've never helped before, this would be a good time if you've helped before Help us again. Your gift is very special. It's very needed. It's very useful. It will go toward the propagation of the Word of God around the world. It will not get lost in uh, overhead. It will go to where God will be able to use it to reach people with His Word. So thank you for your gift. And when you send your gift this month, be sure and ask for your copy of the book, Living the 66 Books of the Bible. Well, I can't wait for you to get into this passage with me from Ephesians chapter 6. This is part one of The Sword of the Spirit. Today we're going to discover that the Lord has given us one offensive weapon, just one. You might say, well, all prayer, which is mentioned later in the text, is a weapon, but not in the same measure. The Bible tells us that we have all of this protective armor, but we have one weapon with which we are to do battle against the evil one. In fact, this is what the Bible says about this in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. It says that we have been given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, When Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he used a word for sword that everyone would have understood. He wasn't talking about the broad sword. He was talking about a little dagger. The word in the Greek language is the word makarios. It's a little six to 18 inch dagger that was carried in a scabbard on the soldier's hip. And it was used for hand-to-hand combat. It was the sword that was used when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the garden. It was the sword that was used When Peter cut off the ear of the high priest's slave, it was the sword that was used to execute James, as we're told in the New Testament. The sword of the Spirit, therefore, is not a sword that you flail around trying to hit something with. It is a very precision-oriented instrument. It is used in hand-to-hand combat, only useful if you find the vulnerable spot 
to inflict the wound. So the Bible says that we have been given a weapon that is like a sword, a short sword, and the Bible calls it the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now let me explain to you how critical it is that we get this right. Let's talk about the explanation of the sword of the Spirit. There are two words in the language in which the New Testament was written, the Greek language. There are two words that are translated by our English word, word, W-O-R-D. Those two words from the Greek language are, first of all, the word logos. Most of us have heard that word along the way. If you live in some kind of a spiritual environment, someone's going to use that word to name a Sunday school class or a software program or something. The word logos is the word that is used in John chapter 1, verse 1, where we're told, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That, as you know, is speaking about Jesus Christ, who is God's last word to man. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is God's word to us so that we won't miss the message. That word, logos, is also used to describe this book, the Bible. Over in Hebrews, we're told that we are to honor those who speak to us the word of God. There he's talking about the scripture. So the word logos, primarily for us today, means this book, the Bible, from cover to cover, the totality of God's message to us in the Bible is the logos. But it's interesting, when you read Ephesians chapter 6, that that is not the word that is used. Paul does not write to the Ephesians and say, and take unto yourselves the sword of the Spirit, which is the logos of God. He doesn't use that word. He uses the other word that is translated by this word, word, and that Greek word is a word we would pronounce like this, rhema, R-H-E-M-A, rhema. Say that word with me, rhema. The word rhema does not mean the totality of the Bible. The word rhema is translated in the most accurate way by the term the sayings of God. So the rhema of God means the sayings of God. It is not the whole book. It is the individual sayings of God that are in the book. Paul says to the Ephesians, take unto yourselves the whole armor of God and especially take the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God. Now, when I was growing up and going to Sunday school and especially Sunday night youth groups, we used to have a thing called a sword drill, where if you didn't know what else to do, you'd have a sword drill to see how fast you could find verses in the Scripture. And they used to call this the sword. Everybody hold your sword up. You remember that? Well, I don't want to ruin your history here, but this is not the sword. The swords are in here, but this is the armory where the swords are kept. And the Bible says that the logos, which is the armory, is different from the sword which resides inside the armory. In this book, there are many swords. In this book, there is a lot of rhema, a lot of sayings of God. It does not say to us, take the word of God, which is the logos. And some people think if they carry their Bible around under their arm that they're protected from Satan. No, 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 it doesn't say that. It says, take the rhema of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the rhema of God. In a real sense, this book is an armory full of swords. The whole Bible is full of swords, the sayings of God. So in order for us to be effective, we need to know the difference between those two words. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, 
that they were to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God. He was not saying, take hold of the Bible. He was saying, take hold of the sayings which are in the Bible. The Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons. It's a laboratory of infallible medicines. It's a mine of exhaustless wealth. It's a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, a bomb for every wound. It is the armory in which you find the swords of the Spirit. So the Bible then becomes a double blessing because here you have everything that God has ever said that he wants us to know. And in this book, you have specific sayings of God that he's given to us for specific situations we may face. And using the sword of the Spirit, the short sword, we're to know the word of God so that we can use it carefully. Now, I need to stop here and make sure you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that the Bible becomes the word of God when we use it in a certain way. Some theologians today teach us that this is just a book of literature, but when you have a crisis experience in reading this book, then it becomes the word of God. That is heresy, and that is not what I'm saying. Let me say it clearly, friends. The Bible is the word of God whether we read it or not. The Bible is the word of God whether it means anything to us or not. It's the word of God whether we ever feel anything when we read it or not. It's the word of God no matter what we do. It can never not be the word of God. Nothing we can do can ever change it from being the word of God. It is the word of God, period, plus, no questions. But from the word of God, we can find those particular sayings that God gives us so that when we go into battle, we can use those sayings against the one who is attacking us. We use the word of God in that special way. So that's the explanation of the sword of the Spirit. Now notice the emphasis of it. Hebrews 4.12 tells us this, that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Here's another passage that's militant about God's word. Here's a passage that tells us that the Bible and the content of the Bible is living. It's energetic. It's powerful. It's able to do what no one can comprehend. It's capable of doing. It is not possible for the enemy to stand against the dreaded weapon of God's word. And a material sword, one that you would use in a physical battle, pierces the body, but the spiritual sword pierces the heart. A material sword gets duller as you use it, but a spiritual sword gets sharper every time you use it. A physical sword requires the hand of the soldier, but the word of God doesn't require anything, just the sword itself. So, Here's the difference. God has given us this specific weapon to be used in hand-to-hand combat with the enemy, and the Bible says that those swords are found within the covers of this book. Individually, we discover them. Now, I want to give you, thirdly, the example of how this works. If you were to appeal to someone to show you how the sword works, you would certainly at least begin to think about maybe whoever designed the sword could tell you how it works. 
Well, I want you to know that the designer of the sword of the Spirit was Jesus Christ himself. And over in Matthew chapter 4, we have an illustration of how he used the sword of the Spirit against the enemy who came to tempt him. Matthew chapter 4 is a very interesting chapter. The first 11 verses of the fourth chapter tell us about Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 3 gives us the account of Jesus' baptism. Now, watch carefully and hold these two thoughts together. Matthew chapter 3, God in heaven validates Jesus Christ as his son. Remember, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 4, Satan tries to disabuse Jesus of that title. He tries to challenge him at the very core of his sonship. He comes at him with everything he has to try to prove that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, well-pleasing to the Father. Now, Satan is going to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. By the way, if you'll read it carefully, you'll know that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, so it was the will of God for Jesus to be tempted. Have you ever wondered why? I think I understand that now. I think God wanted us to see how that works. He wanted us to see Jesus under fire. He wanted us to see what happens when a swordsman uses the sword of the Spirit in the right way against the enemy. So here we have Jesus at the bidding of the Spirit of God taken into the wilderness where Satan is going to tempt him. Now, let me express to you how important it is to know that Satan doesn't have very much of a strategy, but he has a very powerful one. He only has three strategies that he uses. He's used them every time he's ever tempted anybody. He's used them on you and on me, and here they are. They're the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He began his temptation career back in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Eve. Remember, he came to Eve and he said to Eve that the fruit was good for food, the lust of the flesh. And it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And it was able to make one wise, the pride of life. The same temptation that Satan used on Eve, he is going to use on Jesus. Now, Eve succumbed. I'm going to tell you ahead of time, Jesus does not. (laughs) But the temptations are the same. Watch carefully. First of all, he tempts Jesus with the lust of the flesh. Matthew 4, 1 through 3, we read these words. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness specifically so that he could be tempted. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, where did he get that? Because God the Father had just said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan was listening into the conversation. And he said, if you really are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now the first temptation is Satan saying to Jesus, satisfy your hunger by turning these stones into bread. Remember, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. If you've ever fasted, you know you can get pretty hungry. And Satan is saying to Jesus, just do a little miracle. Jesus, if you are the Son of God, why are you hungry? Satan is tempting Jesus to use his divine power to meet a human need. 
He was trying to get Jesus to act independently of the Father. He was trying to play on the human hunger of Jesus to get him to use his divine power to satisfy his own need to do a miracle for himself. How many of you know Jesus never did a miracle for himself? We're told that when he was on the cross, he could have called 10,000 angels, thousands of angels, but he never did. He never used a miracle for himself. He came to serve others not to be served. And if he had responded to Satan's temptation, he would have ceased to be the son of God because he would have acted independently and not under the father's direction. He would have done something without the father's permission. Remember, the Bible says he came only to do the father's will. He came to live under the father's direction. If he had used the opportunity to take those stones that were on the ground there in the wilderness that probably looked like little Hebrew loaves of bread, and said some words over them and turned them into bread, he would have no longer have been the Messiah. He would have disqualified himself to be our Savior. It would have been over. But Jesus didn't succumb because he knew about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So you read in verse 4 what happened. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he didn't argue with him. He didn't discuss it with him. He didn't say, I don't think you should do that. No, he just reached into his armory and he pulled out the right sword and he used that sword against Satan. He said, it is written, Satan, take this. And what Jesus said was simply, listen, Satan, God keeps people alive, not bread. How do you think bread came about in the first place? God is the one who is responsible for that. And God can bring nourishment to me, and he doesn't even need bread to do it. (laughs) Jesus was telling Satan, I will not act independently of the Father. No. First round is over, and Jesus wins. (laughs) How many of you wish Satan would quit after round one? (laughs) He doesn't ever do that, does he? In fact, he will take what he learned in round one and try to use it against you in round two. And he does exactly that with Jesus. Here is Test number two. The first one is the lust of the flesh. The second is the lust of the eyes. Verse five, the devil took Jesus up into a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, now where did he get that? God the father had just said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan says, if you really are the son of God, as your father says you are, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The second temptation of Jesus took place 450 feet above the Kidron Valley on the temple roof. Jesus is on the pinnacle of the temple with Satan, and Satan says to him, if you really are the Son of God, why don't you prove it? Why don't you just cast yourself off this temple and see what happens? See that the Lord God will save you. Josephus says if you ever were up on that pinnacle and you look down, no matter who you are, it would make you dizzy because it's a long way up. And the reference to the temple in the holy city is very significant because in rabbinic tradition, they held that when Jesus returned to take away the bondage of the Jewish people, he would come from the pinnacle of the temple and ascend into the temple square, and they all believed the rabbinic tradition that that would happen. So it's really true that if Jesus had jumped off the temple and landed safely in the middle of the temple square, everybody would have said, this is our Messiah, and they would have taken him as their Messiah immediately. Now watch what Satan is doing. I told you he uses what he learns in the first temptation against you in the second one. 
Here's how Satan reasoned. He said, Jesus, if you won't work a miracle for yourself because you don't want to live independently of the Father, why don't you let God do a miracle for you? Why don't you jump off and let God catch you and protect you on the way down? Satan used the second temptation to eliminate the problem encountered in the first temptation. If Christ cannot perform a miracle independent of his Father, then let the Father do a miracle for him. Sounds logical, but it is totally illogical. In the first temptation, Satan was trying to get Christ to distrust his Father and act independently. In the second temptation, he was trying to get him to trust God more than he should. (laughs) He was trying to get him to be presumptuous and jump from the temple so that his Father would catch him. The devil wanted Christ to set himself up as a wonder worker, to put on a show, but the Lord had the perfect sword already, and once again, he reached into his armory that he was carrying with him, and he pulled out sword number two, and he said, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. There was a man in the time of Jesus by the name of Simon Magus who promised to prove that he was the Messiah and dive off the pinnacle of the temple. And he did it. And there was really nothing wrong with the dive, but the landing messed him all up. (laughs) He was presumptuous. He was tempting God. Jesus used the sword on Satan. He says, Satan, don't you tempt God. Don't set traps for God. Don't force God into situations he never intended to occupy. Today we have to apply that truth. We must not ask God to be our bellhop or our servant. We must not be presumptive in our faith. Jesus knew exactly the right word to use to defeat Satan's attack. He said, don't tempt God, and he quoted from the scripture. For all of us who have a tendency to be presumptuous, let us remember one simple truth. It is absolutely right to believe in miracles. It is absolutely wrong to schedule them. (laughs) Now, I want to leave one other thought with you before we go on to round three. Did you notice that when Satan came back for round two, since Jesus used the scripture against him in round one, Satan's going to use the scripture against Jesus in round two. We hear Jesus being told by Satan, it is written. And then Satan quotes from Psalm 91 and 11 and 12. And notice what he says. He said, it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. He quoted from Psalm 91 and 11 and 12, but he didn't quote it correctly. Do you know what Psalm 91, 11 and 12 actually says? It says, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Satan left the all your ways out. Because here's what I've learned about the enemy. Here's what I've learned about Satan. It's something very interesting, very practical. Satan always understates the goodness of God, and he always overstates the judgment of God. You know, that's a strategy that he's been using since the Garden of Eden. He used it against Adam and Eve. He used it in the wilderness against the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says he's still using it today and will be using it throughout the end of the age. He's the great deceiver, and his purpose is to help us fail, not help us succeed. He wants us to believe that God is not for us, but that he's against us. And he'll keep doing that and keep doing it, but we don't have to fall 
a prey to his deceit. More about the sword of the Spirit tomorrow as we open our Bibles together again to Ephesians chapter 6. On Friday, we're going to talk about what the Bible says about salvation. As we close this program today, let me just say a word of gratitude uh, to all of you who are helping us during the month of June as we have an ingathering of funds for our fiscal year ending. Your sacrifice and giving, even with the threat of uh, inflation and all of that hanging around, is such an incredible encouragement to me personally and to all of us here at Turning Point that you want to be a part of the spread of the Word of God and that you're willing to join us through your giving and through your intercession so that we can do what God has called us to do. You know, the Bible says that God's Word never returns unto Him void. That means when you send the Word out, something happens. We know that to be true. And we thank you for the part that you play in helping us do what we do. We'll see you right here tomorrow. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, The Word, please visit our website. There you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected. Our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. When you do, be sure to ask for your copy of David's new book, Living the 66 Books of the Bible, and learn to better understand and apply God's Word each day. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James Versions with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, The Word, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Did you know that nearly 2 million Turning Point radio programs are broadcast each year? Your support enables Turning Point to continue delivering the unchanging Word of God to an ever-changing world. And thanks to our giving challenge, any fiscal year-end gift you give until the end of June will be doubled up to $50,000. You can help Turning Point finish strong by donating today. Call 800-946-4300 or go to davidjeremiah.ca. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. I don't know who said it first or where I heard it, but someone said that life wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't so daily. 
Life starts over every 24 hours. That's great when things are going well. But when things are hard, life seems relentless. What we need when life is like that is persistence. That word occurs only once in the English Bible, describing a man who wouldn't take no for an answer when seeking something he needed from a friend. He knocked and knocked and knocked until he got the answer he needed. God wants us to be that persistent with Him. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover how God likes persistence on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.